the readings from James chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 6, page, 100, page 1215 in the Church Bibles. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. So, um, for those who are new to this, maybe it's the first time you've been in a church service for ages. Um, when I ask rhetorical questions, I quite like answers. <laughs> so if I ask a question, don't be scared to shout out what you think. Um, audience participation is great. But we are going to just explore uh, these uh, words from the pastor James to his uh, flock, to the 12 tribes that were scattered as he describes at the very beginning of his letter. So James is a pastor. He is the, the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he is now the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem that has fallen in hard times. We know that because of Paul taking a collection elsewhere in Scripture. And this is James writing as a pastor. Um, maybe a series or some people see this as a series of uh, proverbs, but there's, set, there's great links all the way through, James. And we've been looking at it uh, for seven weeks. This is week eight. It's the penultimate week. Next week, we finish uh, uh, the book of James. As we do, shall we pray? And Father, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. You are our rock, our redeemer. Would you build in our life today? Would you save us today? In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I must apologize um, right away and say I've not got a PowerPoint. Um, I intended doing it this morning, but uh, sleep, uh, I was more interested in sleep this morning, uh, so I didn't get up to do it. So I apologize. But I think it's pretty straightforward how this goes. And so I really don't think you need a PowerPoint. Anyway, James. And what I'll do is, some way through, we'll just look at it. We'll just, so keep your Bibles open. Um, what was that page 1215, I think it was, in, in the church Bibles there. Um, so here is James, getting to the end of his letter to these 12 tribes of Israel, of God's people. 
And I hope from the very beginning you can see this thought in what James is writing, especially in verses 13, 14, that life is uncertain. Okay, I'll say it again. It's a very important thing to say. Life is uncertain. There is a lie that some of us are tempted to believe, a story that's put out there amongst many other stories in our culture, grasping to get our attention. And that lie is this, that if we are smart enough, that if we are disciplined enough, good things will happen in our lives. Work hard, get, get your papers, get educated, pay your taxes, then you'll have a good, prosperous life. And in fact, you'll have a better quality of life than your parents before you. Now, we know that this generation is the generation who have not as good a standard as life as their parents. And we know in many other ways that that is a lie because life is uncertain. In other words, we really are not in control of our lives. We like to think we are, but we really are not in control of our lives. And for our sakes, James describes a group, maybe it's an imaginary group, maybe it's an actual group of merchants who moved around but were God's people. And what they were doing were drawing up plans of what they were going to do the next day and the day after and into the next year. And these merchants had something of a, an unqualified confidence that they could control the futures. Much like people sometimes will look at horos horoscopes, their daily horoscopes. Um, in fact, if you go to the news round north of the Quare, I believe they're even in that free magazine, that the idea that we can see into the future in such a way and then we will follow the, the, the course that these predictions uh, say we should take. Some people go even further and, and have tarot readings. Um, what is my future? Who am I going to meet? Is there danger ahead? Well, you're going to meet a lot of people, and yes, there is danger ahead. Very non-specific uh, suggestions, and yet what people do is they open themselves up to so much that it's contrary to what God says they should be doing. So really, we have very little control in our lives. And in this passage, James says this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you not, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I don't think James is saying that planning is bad per se. It's good to plan. As a church leadership team, we, we plan into the next year and beyond. Uh, as friendship hour, we are planning what is the leadership succession in friendship hour, etc., etc. Planning is good. Plan how you're going to budget your money. Plan how you're going to invest time with your children and your grandchildren. Invest in them. Plan with them so that good may come about. So planning per se is not a bad thing, and we know that. There's many proverbs that would say such. And for instance, Proverb 21 and verse 5 says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. But the problem is, we sometimes forget the uncertainty of life even in that planning. Proverbs 27, 5 
also goes on to say, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. It's quite possible that James was thinking about that as he was looking at the church, looking at the situations that were going in that church, seeing that there were people who were making plans and God was not involved in that. Maybe there were merchants who were planning for the future, who were putting all of their eggs in the basket of prosperity and money, money and success and prestige and a name. And he as a pastor was saying, these things are fleeting. You may plan, but it may not happen. In our church family, for instance, we know of two people who have Lyme disease. Terrible disease that inflicts in so many different ways, makes life so unpredictable, one day high, the next day low, and puts all planning out the window, all holidays, all visits, going to church, gathering with God's people. Life is unpredictable. Planning is not bad. And Proverbs encourages us to not boast about tomorrow, but to bring the Lord into that. And in fact, if I was not pretty sure that for the next 20 minutes I was going to speak on this, you wouldn't really know what the next five minutes was going to bring. I pray that the Lord doesn't call me home in the next five minutes. But you know what I'm getting at? Planning is good, but there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And how many of us would also testify that we have really grown as Christians through the hard times? Did we plan to have those hard times? No. We may have taken a choice, a decision based on God's word to say, I must stand in the truth and I'm going to have a lot of hassle from that in light. And what happens is you do have the hassle, but you grow. But more often than not, it's the unexpected things. The people, our young, uh, the, the, the partners, our young people, our children choose to bring home. We may not like them. We may not go on with them but they've become part of our family. Life is hard. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's lots of different case scenarios I could throw in there, but I hope you get that. But most people, I think, um, believe life should happen this way. I'm going to give you a little thing to think about. Well, first of all, they think if you're a good person, you love God, you do your best, then your life should go well. And a lot of people think if you're a bad person, hate God, and you're undisciplined, you're lazy, you're slothful, and all of that, then your life shouldn't go well. Two different people on a spectrum. So the better you are, the better life goes. The worse you are, the worse life, the, the worse life goes. But we all know that that is not the case. And people think, if they think that way, that if you go to a sweetie machine, you stick the appropriate amount of money on, the machine whirls about, does whatever it's doing, and then drops out the sweeties. They should get what they have paid for in that way of thinking. But here's how life, I think, seems to work more often than not. If you're a good person, you love God, you do your best, all kinds of bad things may happen to you. Lyme disease may happen to you. It's not something you've done God's not punishing you. Life sucks at times. I hear stories of people who deserve bad things, but they seem to begin through life 
as if life does owe them something and life is determined to give them something good. But I also hear stories of people who seem to be doing everything right, but there's nothing but trouble in their life. Elaine Brown, who's nursing her dying husband and her dying son, and when she's visiting her dying son, having fought through pancreatitis for as long as I've ever known her, but still a wonderful, gracious, godly, spirit-filled woman of God. She falls down in the stairs and breaks her neck. We know that story of those of us in this church family. We know many more stories like that. Life is uncertain. Life is precarious. There's burnouts, there's family problems, and sickness and all sorts. Let's not stick our, our heads in the sand and think other than that. So in contrast to the way we think or we expect life to work, here's what it's actually like more often than not. You go to a sweetie machine, you sting in, stick in the appropriate amount of money, the machine whirls and turns and nothing happens. And for good measure, you decide to kick the machine. And the only thing you do is you break your foot. <laughs> do you know what I'm getting at? That, I think, so... James is saying in these first few verses, you plan, you plan, you plan. Who are you to plan? What is your life like? What is the point of your life? What's it all about? Actually, there's no greater question asked. That the answer to that question is crucial to why we are here, why we breathe in and we breathe out, and why we do the things that we do. It's probably the most asked philosophical question ever. And yet most people, I think, don't believe there's an answer to it. It's a, it's a fruitless question. And it's a question that they will be asking until the very end. And I actually see the pursuit of that as being life itself. Whereas Jesus says something quite different. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Stop at that. Discover that. And then come, pick up your cross and follow me. Maybe... As I'm wittering on here, you would look at your life and say it's empty. There's no meaning in it. Maybe you look at your life and you see with all the frenetic activity we are involved in in church, if that is your experience, maybe in your honest moments you wonder, is it all worth it? Is it all just froth? Why am I buzzing around so much? Where is the be still? Be still, be still, and know. And know intimately as Adam knew Eve that I am God. Where is that in our lives? What is your life? What are you doing? Deep down, do you feel as a waste? Deep down, do you feel that there needs to be more? Or deep down, do you stand with those three guys that were baptized a month ago and speak about real life situations, very different. Illness, um, trauma, doubt, anxiety, but yet speak of the Lord who says, I'm not done with you yet, mate. I'm about to live my life the way God intended it to be living. I have my mission from God. There were three testimonies that came on that day. Is that where you're at? And you, even though we are nowhere near perfect, we do know 
Life has meaning. Life has purpose. James not only asks a question, he gives the answer. And he says this to those people who are basing their life on things that are fleeting. He says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's like sticking on the kettle and the steam comes out. It appears for a little bit of time and then vanishes. It may have an effect. If you hold your hand over it, it will scold it and that will last for a little while. But the memory of that will go eventually if your life is built on froth on activity and not in Jesus. James's merchants fondly supposed that their life is secure, that their life was a solid, substantial thing that would stand four square against all the winds of circumstances. And James doubted it greatly. But the truth is, yes, our life's unpredictable, but our life is short as well. The room that I sleep in just now, one day someone else will sleep in that room and the memory of me will be gone. One day someone else will stand up here week in, week out and I will be left in the memory of some people and a heck, of, a, a heck of a lot of church minutes. But that is it. I doubt if my great, great grandchildren will know who Davy Barry is. They may, but they may not. Because life is unpredictable and life is short. James says in verse 15, instead, you and I ought to say this, it is the Lord's will, if, sorry, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. And the truth is, both life itself and what we are able to do depend on the divine will, God's providence. He is the sovereign I am. Are you having a rubbish week? God is still on his throne. Are you in cloud nine? Praise the Lord. But God is still on his throne. And whether your week has been good or whether it's been bad, whether it's been quick or fast, there is nothing you could have done or will do that will merit the Lord loving you more or less. He is never changing the same even in the truth that life is unpredictable and short. My, my son Dylan thinks this sermon is long, but <laughs> life, goodness, it's stretching in front of him. I've got 20 more years to work. Kind of a looking forward to it in some respects. But the older you get, I was with a few people this week. In fact, I was with the pastoral visitors this week and one or two of them was saying, it's not nice being old. And I was not agree. In my heart, I didn't agree with them. I look forward to being old. Or <laughs> I look forward to my grandchildren and my knees. I look forward to spoiling them rotten and then sending them away hyperactive. <laughs> With a I look forward to all of that, but I understand 
where some of them were coming from. It's not nice being old when you can't do what your body, your mind wants to do, when your body is stopping you. And when you're older, you understand, I believe, I'm grasping it all the more, the fragility of life, the preciousness of life. And I hope that we have fewer and fewer regrets in life, even though it is unpredictable and even though it is short. And why can't we, who are getting older and older, have the same aspirations, the same ministry as a boy who is 15 and the world before him? Why can we not have those same God-given aspirations, dreams, hopes, expectations? Can we not share through word and deed with our neighbor as much as a 15-year-old boy can share through word and deed with our neighbor that God is love and says, come and taste and see that I am good? Of course we can. Can Jesse Bunch and Balhousie not have a ministry that is powerful as much as Andrew Carr can have a ministry that is powerful in the school? Andrew will be restricted to how much he can testify about his hope in Jesus Christ. But Andrew can pray every single day as children walk in that door. That they, as, as he is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that they would experience something of God's love through him. Likewise, Jessie, in her wheelchair, restricted with what she can and cannot do, can be a powerful prayer warrior. Even though life is unpredictable and life is short, but what is the Lord's will in what we are to do? There was no one more conscious of the reality of the providence of God than the Apostle Paul. It's therefore not surprising that we are able, um, that he, when he looked at life and what it could be, and then he experienced that life in all of its fullness. It's not no surprise that we see time and time again that he was relying on the providence of God, that he believed that God was going before him, that he trusted that the Lord would make good his promises to guide him to Rome as he believed God was calling him at the end of his ministry. And therefore, as he was saying goodbye to the leaders of the church in, in Ephesus, in Acts 18, he says this, God promises, and I will come back. In fact, he didn't say that God promises. That's me making a mistake. He says, if I come back, it is God's will. If I come back to be with you, it is God's will. And then he set sail from there. And then when he was hoping to visit uh, the Corinthians, he qualified that by saying in 1 Corinthians 4, I will come to you very soon, if it is the Lord's will. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And again and again in Philippians 2, he says, I hope in the Lord uh, Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I hope that the Lord will help me to send Timothy to you soon. 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news of you. And then he says in Philippians 2, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. The apostle Paul, with all the shipwrecks and beatings and, and being stoned and starving at times and being persecuted for his faith and his acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God and all the miracles and all of that was going on, still was a man who believed that God was on his throne no matter what was going about him. Yes, even his experience was unpredictable. His life was cut short, but he was living within the will of God. He knew where he was going and what it was all about. Do we give sufficient thought and attention to our utter dependence upon the will of the one and only living, true and living God. Take note of the warnings from verse 15 and 16. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is said, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So let's have confidence in the Lord. What, how do you know that what the Lord wants you to do? Well, be holy as He is holy is a good place to start. And thereafter, discern, wait patiently. Get the counsel of wise brothers and sisters. Lay that prayer concern before them. And then take baby steps forward or large steps of faith. Even knowing that whatever the Lord has called you to, even in that there will be trouble and difficulty as we pick up a cross, which is no mean thing, and be obedient and follow Him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The one and true living God who is knowable, who is in control, who is kind, who is just, just and who does right in everything. That's James's first little bit. And I'm only going to say a few words about the second part. But that's James' first little bit in speaking to a church family who were scattered who were poor. There was a mixture of people, no doubt, of rich and, and poor. And let's be honest, in our world, we would be numbered among those who are rich. So there's a challenge to us to do right with what we have been given, to be good stewards of what we have, to see it as a gift from the Lord, to hold it lightly and to follow. Be careful in what we boast on. Be careful of ra racing ahead of the Lord, not knowing if it's His will. Trusting that He actually does go before us and invites us to follow Him and be involved with what He is doing in that place, because in that place there is blessing. In verses 1 to 6, James is, is holding up a warning to all Christians who may be tempted by all the things that the world esteems to be important. 
There is divine judgment waiting for those people we read in these six verses. There is divine justice waiting for those who misuse the gift of wealth. But neither here nor elsewhere in the New Testament are the rich denounced merely because they are rich, but rather for yielding so readily to the temptations to which riches bring. And that is a false sense of security. You know, tomorrow our we're going to go to that place and we're going to build and we're going to stay there for a year. A false sense of security and an insatiable love of power. We will do this. We will do that. We are in control. Jesus, in his teaching on this subject, emphasizes the self-satisfaction that so often results from the accumulation of wealth. He warns us, as James warns us, with these words. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And in Mark 10, he's, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus says again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. James undoubtedly stresses the certainty of the retribution that waits for us who have been led astray with wealth, with security. We praise God that we are secure in this, this culture. We praise God that we don't have guards at the front door as they do have in Iraq. And that is a good thing. But James says this, misery is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted. Your gold and your silver are corroded. And the, tr the incredible truth in verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. And what a terrible, terrible thing that is. Especially if the cries are about us and what we have done with the good things that God has given us. So James warns that miseries are coming upon the rich because they imagine that by means of their wealth, they can mitigate, if not render, themselves immune from sorrows and hardships that are the lot of many others. And James says that is not possible. As I was thinking about that, and, and I know this has been a, a very doom and gloom, and that's why I'm leaning in this uh, lectern like this. <laughs> but we must look at these scriptures and not candy coat them or put ice and sugar on them or whatever. It is a warning. And I was led to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and as we finish, and I'd just like to read it as Jesus reads it, maybe say one or two very brief things. And I'm reading from Luke chapter 10. There was a reason why Jesus chose the Samaritan. And I'm sure if you've sat in any number of sermons that you'll know 
that they were despised half-breeds. Um, they were. The Jews did not esteem them well. And here comes Jesus wanting to really put the, the knife in and make life uncomfortable. And so he uses them as a good example. The good Samaritan. The worthy jihadist. Whatever it may be. And Jesus says this. And we read in Luke, sorry. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up and tested Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe they weren't much different from the merchants in James who were looking for security in the future. Or those who read tarot or seek some reassurance of the future from their, their uh, horoscopes. What must I do to be happy in the future? Likewise, they says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? Do, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That should have been it. Because Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will inherit eternal life. You will inherit the kingdom of God. That should have been it. But, and there's always a but, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to set his future and be secure in that. He wanted to show himself to be right. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, a man of great esteem, of great prestige. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side maybe because he was scared to lose it. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, maybe because he was also scared to lose what he had. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil, and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and the next day he took two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As you as followers of Jesus Christ this week, and you may have plans for the, what the week may bring, and undoubtedly will come across things that are unpredictable. And maybe you ask the question, what is my life to be this week? God, what do you want me to do this week? May you likewise go and show mercy to whoever God 
brings along your way. Jesus calls us to do that. That is the will of God for us. Be merciful with your finances. Be merciful with your time. Be merciful with the tongue. Be merciful in your heart. Share and invite people to taste that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray together? <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you for your word that it is alive, that it is active, that it is a double-edged sword, that it that bruises us and a pride that cuts us deeply and draws blood. And I pray, Father God, that you would continue to bring it alive to us and that we would be obedient to your royal law, the law that brings freedom and life, and that by your Spirit you would lead us in the ways that you have before us. Father, by your Spirit you would lead us into eternal life. By your Spirit that you would lead us to people that we may become merciful with all of our lives. Have mercy on us because we know we fall short. Pardon and forgive us, dear Lord. Amen.